Um, I can't tell you how happy I am about this arts conference that's coming up. I remember I, I've gone and spoken at many, many arts conferences. I have no artistic skill whatsoever. But all the artists like C.S. Lewis. And he wrote much about the creative life. And he, he um, I, going through his works, I mean, I've read him over and over and over again. I discovered that he uses the word imagination over 31 times, 31 different ways. And consequently, I, I did a book on C.S. Lewis and the imagine, surprising imagination of C.S. Lewis with Mark Neal, who will also be at the conference. And so we talk about the use of the imagination, the use of the creative features. J.R.R. Tolkien, Lewis's friend, said that we are sub-creators. We're made in the image of a creator. And whether you've engaged in art yet or not, um, you need to come. And you may discover that you've got some very interesting artistic talent that's been resting beneath the surface. I have a discussion group that meets at my house every week. We always begin our discussions with poetry. And one night, one guy said, let's all write a poem. And we weren't writers. Uh, and so, I mean, poet, I, I'm I've written a lot of books, but nothing that people would want to read, and certainly not poetry. But all the guys got together and wrote, and this one guy had never written a poem before, and, and we just blew our minds. It was incredibly good, publishable poetry. And he ended up becoming the poet laureate of our group, and he has written untold numbers of poetry, and he never knew he had it in him. You may have a painting skill that you didn't know. You'll come here. Norm Daniels is an incredible painter. I have a couple of his paintings at my house, and I know when I get old and die, my kids are probably going to take those paintings and sell them and put their kids through college. I mean, these are incredible paintings. And how many of you know Norm Daniels? He was up here. Hume Lake had an artist. He was an artist. That was his job. And I always thought Hume should have an arts conference. One of the best ones I was involved with was in Orcas Island up in the Sam Watts. And it went for many, many years. And a guy named Dick Staub led it. And if you've heard of Malcolm Guy or Scott uh, Karens or Bob Bennett, the musician, all these different people would come. And Staub had some health problems. And consequently, it ended. And I have been grieving ever since because I love hanging around artists. And consequently, I said to uh, Hume, you guys need to have an arts conference here. The world is crying for this stuff. And independent of any of my uh, suggesting this, Emily, feeling the movement and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, said, I think we need to do this. But she went beyond just, I think we need to do it. She put muscle to the vision and is making it happen. And I am very excited, and I can't wait to be here in October. It's going to be a thrill. So if you have an artistic interest, if you have a creative bent, if you just like being around people with creative bents because they bring out the best in you, I hope you come. I hope we see you in October. Um, I wanted to begin this evening by saying a few things about C.S. Lewis, and then we'll throw it open, okay? Let's pray. Father, it's a mostly question-answer evening. We thank you that you have made us people in the image of a creator, creative, we thank you that you've made us curious. You've put us with the ability to know in a world that has lots of things to be known about. 
And I thank you that you have put in us a kind of creativity that can ask questions, not be afraid of questions, that the questions can then give uh, birth to a sense of wonder and awe and ultimately to worship. And I pray that some of that will occur in our midst this evening. Fill us with your spirit for this time. And since we'll be all participating in this, use all the crumbs that all of us throw out this time to make a banquet. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Um, I've been studying C.S. Lewis for 52 years. And sometimes I try to think, what are the recurring big ideas in Lewis? I don't just read Lewis. I read the books he refers to. He opens more than wardrobe doors. I'm probably the only, did I mention this, the only former P.E. major who's actually read Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen. I actually read Philip Sidney's In Praise of Posey, a medieval work on literary criticism. And I think my old football buddies would have thought I lost it completely if they saw me reading a book in praise of Posey. But I think anybody can benefit from C.S. Lewis's literary critical work, which is his best book, his best material. I've done a book on the neglected C.S. Lewis to write about the books that nobody reads and they should be reading. You want to read your Bible? You'll become a better Bible reader if you know how literary criticism works, how to dig into a text deeper, to squeeze as much nectar out of any given text you come to. So anyway, reading through Lewis over and over again, I've seen in the books that he refers to, I've seen what some of his big ideas are, the recurring ideas. <clears throat> number one, not, not the most important, but the number one idea I need to talk about is that he was an objectivist. That means he believed there was an objective world that existed independent of our thoughts about it. There are things in that world to be known. And we, as subjects, are capable of knowing. So there are knowers and things to be known. And that reality out there, Lewis thought, was a gift to us from God, and we need to try to accommodate ourselves to it. We all operate with a bit of uh, intellectual scoliosis, and we need to adjust the scoliosis of our minds to the plumb line of reality. And in an essay he gave to the students in the English division of Oxford University, published as the English Syllabus, he said this, we have fulfilled our whole duty to you if we can help you see some given tract of reality. We have fulfilled our whole duty to you if we can help you see some given tract of reality. He was talking, of course, to his students about the, the tract of the reality of a text. Our tendency is to forget the objective reality and project ourselves onto things. Sin is man playing God of his own life, and it is compounded when we begin to project onto things what we want it to be, rather than learning what it actually is. So we can start with the literary text, and we can develop it further from there. But Lewis also was a Christian. <clears throat> he came to faith as an adult convert to Christ. He had already been teaching at Oxford for six years before he became a Christian. And after he became a Christian, one of the best lines that he wrote about this reality and his being a Christian is, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so this reality is infused with the presence of the very God who created it. 
uh, I think we can develop this a little bit. One of the last books he wrote was called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. It was actually published after he had died. It's a fiction correspondence, just like screw tape letters is a correspondence between one devil to another devil. Lewis intended to write a sequel to it, one angel to another angel, but he said, who could ever write the second book? Any of us can approximate the diabolical, who can approximate the angelic? So this is one side of a correspondence of one person to another, just trying to scratch and claw our way along and figure this Christian life out. In chapter 17 of that book, it's one of my absolute favorite pieces that Lewis wrote. He has a paragraph, and I want to define a word for you. I don't mean to insult your intelligence. You probably already know this word, but when I first read this book, I had no clue what this word means. So if you're here like I was then, I define it for you. It's the word coruscation. Coruscation. A coruscation is a sudden flash of brightness. Uh, you can talk about it. Um, I, I grew up in Southern California. I'd never seen a firefly in my life except at Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland. And they were electric. I moved to Wheaton, Illinois, and I can't tell you the thrill of my soul when for the first time in my life on a hot, humid summer evening, I saw fireflies everywhere in the sky. Amazing. Magical. Did you know if they die while their light's on, the light stays on? There's, this, there's something you could develop a sermon about. Or we could talk about lightning coruscating in the dark clouds as some summer storm moves our way. You get the idea of coruscation? He writes this, making a distinction between gratitude and adoration. Gratitude explains very prop exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. But adoration asks, what must that being be like whose far-off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. I first read that about the time Voyager, the interplanetary probe, was speeding past Saturn. I think it was like 1976 or something like that. And they discovered at that time, when we got these pictures up close and personal, that Saturn has a network of rings. We knew that. Cassini had already told us about the Cassini gap. But the outer ring of Saturn is called the F ring. It's braided. It's braided, people. And I'm asking Lewis's question, what must God be like that he braided the outer ring of Saturn though no human eye had ever seen it? Wow. I shared this with a bunch of people. I shared it with one of my friends who was a firefighter. And he said, yeah, we don't know, Jerry, if God didn't just braid it for the picture. I grew up in Southern California. I always like to see palm trees silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky. Or to see, to see a mountain range silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky. Now I live in the Midwest. To see a cornfield silhouetted against an <laughs> auburn sunset sky. I've lived there long enough now to see that there's great beauty there. If you would willingly distill it out and look patiently and as we'll learn to look better after the arts conference, right? So anyway, we could have lived on a darkened planet. 
We could have gotten word on high there would be one sunset. We could have lined every west coast of every continent and every island on our globe. And we could have gotten word from on high that this was going to occur. And as we watched it, we could have regaled our progeny by writing of it in journals and in our diaries. But what must God be like? That he's made our planet a perpetual kaleidoscope of sunrises and sunsets. And how often we don't attend. And our life is at loss because of it. One star, I think, twinkling, twinkling in a night sky should be enough to inspire awe and wonder in the mind and heart of every right-thinking and right-feeling individual. But what must God be like that he has glittered the night sky with stars and moons and shooting stars and galaxies and comets? And I wish you could have been with me when I was teaching at Wheaton's Northwoods campus up by Lake Superior when the students knocked on my desk uh, my, my, my office, excuse me, uh, my cabin, knocked on the door and said, Jerry, they're out, they're out. And at midnight, we went out and saw the northern lights and blues and greens and reds and whites pulsating and coruscating in the night sky. Justice is to render to a thing its due. We stood on the ski dock from midnight till 2.30 when they finally dissolved, doing what was just and right. We sang hymns of praise and lifted our hearts in adoration to the God who could give such beauty. What must God be like that he's made delicate things like hummingbirds, butterflies, flower petals? How about a peacock feather? That's one that should keep you in adoration and wonder for a while. But we would be remiss if we stopped there. Lewis is too honest to leave us there. He forces us to ask other questions. What must God be like that there are earthquakes in Haiti, tsunamis in Japan, school shootings in America, AIDS babies dying in Africa? He forces us to ask the hard question because if we can't find God there, we need to do a little more work. And in a sermon he preached at Oxford University called The Weight of Glory, he says, if our religion is objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it's precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we discover what we do not yet know and need to know. And I don't think we should ever be afraid to go there because there's always going to be some sort of smiling providence behind the tough stuff. Even Joseph could say to his brothers, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. So this idea of subject trying to understand object, of knower trying to understand the known, and we do it best in community. Okay, that's an important big idea that leads to the biggest idea in all of his books. There are 73 books by C.S. Lewis. I've read them all multiple, multiple numbers of times. I can take you to every book and show you where Lewis gives either explicitly this idea or he develops it uh, <clears throat> in the book, not saying it specifically, but he develops the concept. And it's this. Reality is iconoclastic. Reality is iconoclastic. What's an iconoclast? An iconoclast breaks idols. I have an image of God. 
Maybe I had a late night conversation with a friend and some of the pieces of the puzzle came together for me. Maybe I heard a sermon or a podcast. Uh, maybe I, I read a book. And all of a sudden, some of the pieces came together for me and I saw God in a more robust way than I'd ever encountered him before. It's breathtaking. But if I hold too tightly to that present image, it will then morph into an idol. And Lewis says in Surprised by Joy, we've got to always kick out the walls of temples we build for him because he always wants to give us more of himself. The concept is not peculiar to Lewis, though. You start reading him and reading the authors that he was uh, um, encouraged and motivated by, you'll see it everywhere. Um, there's an author named Baron von Hugel. He was a philosopher of religion, and he was also a spiritual director. And von Hugel, in his letters to his niece, wrote this. Beware of the first clarity. Press on to the second clarity or the third clarity. Things are way more complex than we first observe. And there's more wonder to be found even in the things that might seem familiar to us. Robert Browning, the poet, uh, he wrote one book, Browning, I got to it through Lewis. It's a 500-page it's a poem called The Ring in the Book, and I found it breathtaking. The whole book is about reality as iconoclastic. But if you want to get to it earlier and easier, read Robert Browning's um, Rabbi Ben Ezra. Matter of fact, how many of you are married? Write it down. Rabbi Ben Ezra. I read it to my wife every year on our anniversary. It's the one that begins, grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. About line 34, 35 in that poem, he writes this, Browning. Then welcome each rebuff that turns earth's smoothness rough. Then welcome each rebuff that turns earth's smoothness rough. We think we have it all figured out. We got everything in its proper place. But we're misled. The earth is not smooth. It has texture. It has geography. It has peaks. It has valleys. Welcome the things that help you to see it the way that it is rather than the way you have to have it be. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, ask yourself, why do I have to have it be this way? There's some great things to discover there, too. Uh, you can go on to um, um, uh, my wife says, my mind is like lightning, one flash, then total darkness. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it's the poem in memoriam and it was written by Alfred Lord Tennyson. It's an 80-page poem, and it's a great poem. He lost a friend, and he's trying to figure out what this means, and he wrote it over about a nine-year period of time. There's some great lines in there, but there's one particularly that is significant because he's talking about theological systems. And he says, our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. All, all theology is just approximation, and the God it seeks to describe is so much bigger, so much more breathtaking. So here's Tennyson, who helps us there. But then we go to Augustine, and Augustine, in his confessions, says, the house of my soul is too small. O oh Lord, enlarge it, 
that you might enter in. And then we go to the Bible, right? It's always nice to root these things in Scripture. Remember Stephen? He was one of the deacons. He's appointed in Acts chapter 6. He's full of the Holy Spirit and bold, and the religious establishment doesn't know what to do with him because he's pointing people to Jesus. And they bring up trumped-up charges against him. And they accuse him of speaking against the temple up on the hill. And in Stephen's defense, if you read it, he begins by saying, you think you've got God in that box up there? Don't you know God is bigger than that? As a matter of fact, God first appeared to our father Abraham in Mesopotamia, hundreds and hundreds of miles from that box. And when Joseph went to Egypt, he didn't go by himself. God was with him. And when Moses was out tending his father-in-law Jethro's sheep in the Midian wilderness, God appeared there too in a burning bush. And oh yeah, David, when he wanted to build the box, God said, David, I appreciate the sentiments, but frankly, heaven is my throne. Earth is just my footstool. How will you build a box to hold me? Wow, he's big. Reality's iconoclastic. The good image that you have in this moment where some of the pieces come together for you, don't stop there. He's always got more for you. Is that cool or what? Any questions? <laughs> Ready, Art? By the way, I've been up at Hume many, many times, 26 years. And, and Art and I have worked together for, I don't know what, five years? Something like that. He's the best guy up front I've ever seen. They've all been good. But I, I haven't known anybody as good as him. Let's, can we give him a hand? <laughs> I am grateful. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah. You're good at what you do. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Okay. I wish I was as good as huh? you at what you do. What did you say? I wish I was as good as you. You're better than me. No. Yeah. You're so much older. Remember, you knew Adam. <laughs> You've been at it longer, much longer. That's right. Yeah. Matter of fact, I, I was told by Wheaton College that I'm supposed to tell you that the archaeology lab has put aside shelf space for you. Shall we pray and close? <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? Any questions? Yeah. Yeah, there you Georgia. go. I have this is Georgia. This is Georgia. We had breakfast the other day, yeah. and she's very bright. And I'm afraid about her questions because I know she's bad. Well, I have two. Oh, two. But one is theological or so something, and the other one is personal. Oh. The personal one is I would love to know where and how you met Claudia oh. and something about your family. Okay, I'm a professor. I'll answer that one first. I'm going to give you a multiple choice question. Okay, I met Claudia... Uh, at a Bible study. I met Claudia on my couch in my own living room. I met Claudia at a mortuary. I met Claudia all of the above. I met Claudia none of the above. You guess. The mortuary. You're only partially right. All of the above. I lived above a mortuary. I had to put my way through college, and a local mortician worked with the Campus Crusade for Christ people. He gave me a job, and I would live upstairs, 
I worked at the desk in the evening, and I was happy to be there because most people were dying to get in. <laughs> and if, if, if nobody was being seen, there were no wakes, I could study, and I got paid for studying. I could do yard work, so if I needed extra money, I could do whatever I wanted. This guy was very good. His name was Dave White. Let's honor him. He got us through. I lived upstairs, and we had a Bible study, and it was a big, big room, and I had finished up my college. I finished after football season my, my last year, and I went to seminary that January, but I was still involved with the Bible study at our house. Claudia transferred in from Hope College in Holland, Michigan, and she heard about the Bible study, and I came up one night after studying at the seminary with an armful of books, and I come in, and I see this woman sitting on my couch, and I go, who is that? So I, um, I went and got my Bible, and I sat down right across from her. I didn't want to sit with her over there because I'd have to be going like this during the Bible study. <laughs> and I just, every time I looked up, there she was. And I said to one of my roommates, who was the young woman, the blonde-haired, gorgeous woman sitting across from me tonight? And he says, oh, that was Claudia Beale. I said, how do you know her? He says, she lives in the same house with my fiancé. And I said, Ron, you've got to introduce me to her. The next week she came. He didn't introduce us. <laughs> the next week she came. He didn't introduce us. And you might say, well, stupid, why didn't you just go up and say, hey, it's nice to see you at the Bible study. What's your name? I'm Jerry. But I was really shy around women. And next week, he introduced me. He said, Claudia Beale, this is Jerry Root. Jerry Root, this is Claudia Beale. And I said, oh. <laughs> Hi. How are you doing, Tim? No, and I just, I started talking to somebody else. And she <laughs> thought I was stuck up. And I said, I never planned for the next step. And so that, that's kind of how, how we met. Eventually, I asked her out to a seminary banquet, if you can imagine, but it was a kick. Imagine if you had a room full of young life and campus life people in a, and with youth pastors at one banquet. That's what it was like. It was a great and wild time, and, and, and I was smitten. So anyway, that's how we met. Second question. Th this one's a little heavier, uh -huh. but it's something I've puzzled about the one thing that I really really want to know I mean maybe we can't know but I've wondered about is how in a perfect heaven in eternity past when God created the angels how did sin enter into Lucifer yeah I, I don't know that I could give you that answer certainly God allowed for the potential of it and I don't know if maybe in the early days of the angels, they might have had some sort of will. Certainly, Satan exercised a will, and apparently a third of the angels exercised a will, and some of them chose not to go. And I think with us, um, as we can make a bad choice, and acrasia or acrasia could set in, continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind, C.S. Lewis says, I think a person could become reprobate. God is always reaching out. He's always sending the sinning society prophets. He's always reaching out. But I think there could come a time when our hearts could get hard. And consequently, I think people can get sealed in that hardness of heart. 
And I have a hope that we too, as we scratch and claw, practicing confession, trying to draw closer to Christ, that we will one day be sealed in that as well. And when we get to heaven, God will say, don't worry, I'm giving you what you've wanted. You will sin no more. And I can't help but think that maybe something like that might have happened among the angels before that was ever brought to us. But I don't know for sure. It's just a guess. Remember, I read about C.S. Lewis and the imagination, and I'm planning on going to Emily's conference. So maybe there's a way we can think about this imaginatively. By the way, all theology should be, in part, imaginative. And we shouldn't be surprised. How many of you are scientists? Okay. How do you begin the scientific method? A hypothesis, and what is that? An imaginative endeavor. And then you test it. And then what do you do after you test it? You show what you've discovered using models. Not the thing itself, but an imaginative, imaginative endeavor. All good thinking begins with the imagination, even theology. Okay? Any other questions? There's, there's one back there. All right, here. Okay. We've got this really handsome man with a beard who's starting to go bald. And one day his beard will be white, his head will be bald, and he will have achieved handsomeness. Yes. What's your name? What's your name? Jimmy. Jimmy? Mm -hmm. Like my younger brother. Okay. Um, You had to skip a story yesterday for time Uh, about sharing with other people, and I'd like to hear it. Okay, so I was a college pastor at a church in Southern California. And we were having summer meetings. We always had this summer festival. They called it Summer Fest. And, and, and there was a junior high kid in my church. His name was Todd. And he came up to me and he said he had a neighbor across the street who had just gotten back that week from studying Tibetan Buddhism in Nepal. And he wanted to know if I would talk with him because he was going to bring him to church the next night. This was on a Sunday night. We are going to have a week-long meetings. We had meals and classes and fun activities, and then we'd always bring in some hotshot speaker. And so I said, sure, Todd, but I I didn't know anything about Buddhism at that time. My heavens. I just sort of brushed him off and said, okay, Todd, yeah, no problem. Next night, he comes up, and he says, Jerry, this is Steve. Steve, this is Jerry, and Todd, a junior high kid, just disappeared. I thought he maybe got Bilbo's ring or something. <laughs> and there I am with Steve, who just got back from studying Buddhism in Nepal. And I said, uh, Todd says you've been traveling a little bit. I'd love to hear about it. How about if we go to breakfast tomorrow morning? And so we went to breakfast on a Tuesday morning. And, and at breakfast... I want, we got at 7 o'clock. He talked till 11. And he told me that he had a girlfriend who died. And he had never really thought about life and death until that moment. And it set him on a quest to find out the meaning of life. And sometimes you meet people who are along some religious track. And you don't know what God might be doing in that person's life. That might be the route that they take on their way to faith. So anyway, he told me all about it and trying to understand things. And Buddhism, you got a lot of kinds of Buddhism, like you have many different kinds of Muslims, many different kinds of Hindus, and so on. But 
Most Buddhists have at central to their belief something that happened with Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. He was a prince. He went out among his people. And he saw them suffering. And he wanted to alleviate suffering. Who could argue with that? But he misassessed, I think, why they were suffering. He assumed that they were suffering because they had unfulfilled desire. So what we have to do is suppress desire and get rid of it. And if we can do it well, maybe we could finally eradicate even our own vestiges of self and we become one with some sort of a world soul. So Steve's in studying Tibetan Buddhism in Nepal, and one of the exercises he had to do was to go into a mosquito-infested trailer and stay there until he no longer cared if they bit him or not. Rid himself of desire. And, and so he's telling me this. Well, you know what? We Christians, we would say there's some disappointment that's a consequence of unfulfilled desire, but we think the picture is way bigger than that because we don't think that all things that we desire is necessarily bad. Psalm 16, 11, thou make known to me the path of life. At thy right hand, there are uh, in thy presence there's fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. James 7, uh, 1, 17, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The gifts that God gives to woo were never given to replace. So sometimes we can see these gifts could disappoint us, but not necessarily so. Sometimes the gifts are given to woo us. And so I think Christianity's light years better than this. But they're on a works treadmill, and they had to make sure they were doing enough. There's where the fear comes in. So after Steve talked to me, he said, tell me what Christians believe. I told him in about five minutes, the heart of the gospel. And then I said, I think my wife would like to hear your story. Why don't you come over for dinner Thursday night? He came over for dinner. And he went through the whole thing again. And it went like that for nine months, every Tuesday morning breakfast, every Thursday night dinner. He read C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy, the book that talks of Lewis's quest to find the object of these deep longings in his heart. Steve knew the longings. Lewis gave him a vocabulary, and he saw that it was Jesus he really wanted, and he became a Christian. Isn't it a great story? He went on to become a medical doctor. I'm still in touch with him. And he actually wrote a book on mere Christianity. It's a very good book. If you're ever teaching a, a Bible study at your church or a, or a study, a book study, and you want to do mere Christianity, get Steve Urban's book on mere Christianity. Is that helpful? Okay. Here's one. Uh, Mark. Mark. Oh, you got to wait. You got to do it. No, you got, no, it doesn't do work. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, three that kind of mold together. You read your Bible 54 times. Yeah. I, that no, humbled that, that's the whole Bible. That's what I'm saying. That okay. humbled me because my number's seven, but I. That's okay. You've read it. You know how <laughs> few Christians have actually read their Bible? Oh, no, it drives me crazy. But my thing is, is how do you grind out the law and the prophets, Lord? Okay, oh. so, and then, and, you know, like I've done the Psalms and Old New Testament 50, 60, you know, I've done those. I, yeah. I can do those all day long, but man, okay, my other one is, who's your favorite living preachers? And then the other thing is, the last one, they kind of all mold together, is uh, uh, my dad died when I was young, so I've been piecing my fathers together, 
and now I'm starting to see my mentors die. And I was like, I had a mentor drop a nugget on me three days ago, and I'm like, Lord, Russ, please don't die for another 30 years. So my question is, like, you're, I'm guessing you're a little older than me, and you're probably... I'm a lot older than and you're start, And I'm just wondering what that transition looks like as your mentors start to disappear. As your mentors disappear. Uh, okay. I'll see if I can remember all these. Remember, I'm old. <laughs> um, the first one was about the Bible. The huh? Law the Law and the Prophets. Jesus said all the Law and the Prophets are summarized in this. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. So consequently, and love your neighbor as yourself. When I read through the Law and the Prophets, I'm saying, Jesus told us that that's what I should be able to find there. Lord, help me to see that start to materialize off the page. And that's helpful to me. Did I mention to you about Chronicles, chapters 1 through 12? No? It must be someplace else. But there's another one, right? I remember reading it through in the early days, and I, I thought, 12 chapters of names? Lord, you're omniscient. You gave us one thin book. Was 12 chapters of names good economical use of the space? <laughs> and then it dawned on me. For me, they were 12 chapters of names. But every one was a person he was intimately acquainted with. He doesn't just love people, generally. He loves individual people. And every time I read it, I remind myself, God loved this one. God loved that one. I've been reading it enough now where I'm starting to get some things out of the genealogies. So it's up ahead as you keep reading. So I think that's helpful to me. David said in Psalm 19, that of the law, it was more desirable than gold, yea, the much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey from the honeycomb. So when I read it, I also pray, Lord, David saw this. I want to see it too. I want some of that honey from the honeycomb. And I think you can ask those prayers, and God will give you more and more each time you read it. Okay, um, my favorite preachers. Two of them are my two youngest sons, Grady and Jeff, they should be speaking here at Hume. They're incredible preachers. And you go online, one of them preaches at Maricopa Springs Church in, in um, Phoenix, Maricopa, Arizona. You listen to him every week, his podcast. My uh, next son preaches at our church. He's my pastor. He lives next door. When I need pastoral counseling, I go to my son. <laughs> and his name is Jeff Root, and it's Glen Ellen Covenant Church. Another one is a former student. And his name's Jeff Frazier. And every time I hear him, he takes my breath away. And he's at a church called Chapel Street. And it's in, it's in, um, uh, it's in Geneva, Illinois. And, and then, I don't know about you guys, I know he's been through some bumps and bruises, but have you ever heard John Ortberg? Guy preaches like an angel. And Ortberg, O-R-T-B-E-R-G. He's not in pastoral ministry now because of some sadness that happened, not with him personally, but at his church. And he was part of the fallout. But you can still go up podcasts and listen to him. And another one um, is Earl Palmer, who pastored years ago Berkeley First Presbyterian Church and then University Press in Seattle. And he's mesmerizing. So those are the ones that, that are some of my go-to. There's a lot of others. I pray virtually every day for 20 churches worldwide that I'm familiar with their ministries and I know their pastors. And, and you, I hope you all pray 
Not just for your own church, but some other churches where you might know the people. Church needs prayer. So, and then the last one, my mentor's dying. I had the guy that took me to the night I trusted Christ with my older brother. They both took me to the meeting. His name was Mark. And Mark told me years ago that he once sort of had a daydream, that he was in the midst of a long, long line. And as he was moving along the line, at the far end, people were dropping off into eternity. And what he was discovering was that the line behind him was getting longer, and the line in front of him was getting shorter. And his thing was, how am I going to suffer the loss of those who have gone on? His thing was, how can I be sure I mentor well those who are in my footsteps? And I think that's a way you can manage it. I have dear, dear friends who have died. Um, and, and, and they are. They're dying with frequency. I went back and did this thing for my old fraternity. I'm the only guy in my fraternity pledge classes still living. And guys I played football with are dying and so on. And it makes me be more uh, eager to make sure I'm faithfully sharing Christ with other people. The, the, the fact that we live once and it's over as far as this earth is concerned and the fact that what's ahead is really going to be great makes me eager to want to tell other people about it. So that's the way I deal with it. Yeah. Yes, right here. Um, I met you outside. You're the Vietnam vet. And tell me your name again. David. David. Yeah. Thank you. Um, first of all, when I was a kid, I knew Half Dome as Full Dome. So You did? Yes. Wow. That was a while ago. Um, my question, oh, I kind of got confused. Is faith quantifiable or a quantity? Thinking of Matthew 17, 20, when Jesus criticized his disciples, O ye of little faith, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, then you could move the mountain. And if so can we grow in faith? And if we grow in faith, are the things that we do to grow in faith, uh, like reading the Bible, um, don't they become works? And then aren't we subject to the criticism of, of Paul to the Galatians? Well, the thing, thing is, you say you start off as faith quantifiable, O ye of little faith. Well, I would have to say to some degree it must be because Jesus said that. What he meant by it and how he measured it, I couldn't tell you. Um, the other thing, too, is um, the works that Paul's writing about in Galatians are the Galatians thought they could be justified by works. And that whole book is a book about justification by faith. So he's certainly putting on this side of the ledger, works aren't going to do it for you if you want to merit or obligate God to save you. God doesn't work that way. He freely gives grace to all who will respond to him. So I, I know that the Galatians thing is relatively easy to manage, but how would you quantify faith? I don't know. I do believe if it is like a mustard seed, it should be something that would be growing in us. And I, I think that's true, and probably that's true of your own experience. The Bible uses other images similarly. It says that when we come to faith, we're born again. Well, I don't want to be weighing in at my birth weight. I want to keep growing. And so there is some developmental features of faith. But I'm not exactly sure how I quantify it, and I'm not exactly sure if it would be quantified exactly the same for everybody because our personalities are different, the circumstances of our life, and so on, the lines that God has drawn to us may all be very different. And I don't know if that helps you, Dave, but that would be the way I'd look at it. So it's taking faith and quantifying it. 
Beg your pardon? Maybe. The faith, the faith that, that saves is faith that what Jesus did for us at the cross forgives us of our sins and all those great salvific words. There's justification, there's adoption, there's reconciliation, there's redemption, there's the initial steps of sanctification and so on. So you can maybe make the comparison. I don't think somebody could call you a heretic if you did. And, and I think there may be great merit to what you're suggesting. I just don't know when Jesus said that what exactly he meant. I need to spend some time thinking about it. Is that fair? Sure. Yeah. First name? Dave. Oh, this is easy for me now. <laughs> Two Daves in a row. Were, my parents were very Anybody creative. else here named Dave? <laughs> you are all allowed to ask questions tonight, right? Okay, hey, go ahead. We, Where are you from, Dave? Um, born in the Philippines, but uh, now. And when you go like this with the mic, you sound like. I think we can all, all relate, by the way, to uh, meeting. I think we can all relate to meeting our future wives kind of at a morgue because you start to realize you're going to have to die to self. And it's a grave situation, ultimately. Wow, that's you know? an interesting so, application. But yeah. my question might be a little bit loaded. Um, and I came alive to self when I met my wife. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, Go ahead. Um, what, what, in a thumbnail sketch, what did C.S. Lewis believe about hell? Um, yeah, I know that's a, probably a long answer. No, I, I think I could do it fairly quickly. I've been working on a book on C.S. Lewis and hell. It's called uh, C.S. Lewis, Hell and the Love of God. When you were in third grade, did you ever go to your teacher's desk and see her arithmetic book open on her desk? What do you think her book had in it that yours didn't have in it? The answers. Here's a verse. Ephesians 1.4. In love, he predestined us. Most people, when they look at the doctrine of predestination, they come up with a deterministic approach to God. You'll never reconcile determinism and love. So I think that if you come up with determinism when you do theological work on uh, predestination. You've done your theology wrong. It doesn't match the answer in the book. And I think you could do that with virtually every doctrine. The doctrine of hell must be compatible with the love of God. And Lewis writes about it that way. And, and Lewis believes that hell is like an asylum. He writes about it in several places, but he writes a book on Paradise Lost by... Um, Milton. In Milton's Paradise Lost, do you know what the capital of hell is called? Anybody know? Pandemonium. All demons. The word pandemonium, we think of it as confusion, right? But it is confusion. It's an asylum. They've denied the central reality of the universe, that God is God and they are not. Hell's a place for nuts. Not only that, Lewis believes that hell is a place for the eternally incorrigible. That if, a, if, if an opportunity could be given, he thinks it would be. But the warnings against self-reference, self-will, and all this, God continues to give because he wants people to break free of it before they have set their course 
in an incorrigible way. And Lewis says this, that basically hell is a prison for the eternally incorrigible. And he writes, I believe the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Job says it in Job 20 or 21, that those going to Sheol, sometimes Sheol in the Old Testament is just a place of death, sometimes it's a place of perdition. This is clearly one of the perdition passages. Those going to Sheol say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of thy ways. So Lewis sees this, and he wants to warn against it. Lunatics, eternally incorrigible, and so on. If you want to see an imaginative depiction, because remember, we're going to do imagination at Emily's conference. If you want to see an imaginative depiction, read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And it is a satire on Dante's Divine Comedy. And Lewis has himself in hell, like Dante has to go through hell. And he takes a bus from hell to heaven. And it takes two days to get there. And what he finds out later is that he is so diminished, he gets on the bus, and the two days really take two days to enlarge. So he'd be big enough to even get to the very threshold of heaven. He gets out of the bus. There's jumbles, fights break out, these incorrigible people. And he keeps finding himself in the jumble, sitting next to somebody else. And here's their story. And you hear all these stories in that chapter, and they're all despicable people. And right when they get to the threshold of heaven, light comes in the window of the bus, and Lewis looks down the aisle and sees his own face in the mirror. He's one of them. They get out of the bus, and they, because they've denied reality, they're diminished. And they're not even substantive enough to crush the grass beneath their feet. And the grass is like walking on a bed of nails. They can't pick the stem of a flower because the flower is real, and they're diminished by their rejection of God. And he plays this out. And each person on the bus has somebody come out of heaven just as Dante had Virgil come out of heaven to reach him and later Beatrice come out of heaven, they come and they try to have this person give up what they're holding on to in God's place. And, and, and we can enjoy things, but if I make an idol out of this thing, it stands as, as a barrier to me understanding the fullness of who God is. And so, so um, each one has these opportunities and only one goes on into heaven. All the rest get back and go on the bus. And Lewis does a very perceptive and imaginative uh, explanation of what this is like. Want to find out more of the psychology of his sense of hell? Read Screwtape Letters, one devil writing to another. But he writes about hell in so many places. There's a chapter on hell and uh, problem of pain as well. Is that enough to go on? Okay. Just remember, whatever you think about it, if you think... It's not compat the doctrine is not compatible with the love of God. You need to go back and do your homework because you're not getting the right answer in the book. Does that make sense? All theology should work that way. Yes, sir, first name? Uh, Joshua. Oh, it's not Dave? No. Okay. Sorry about that. You know what Joshua means? Uh, not really. <laughs> it means Jehovah is salvation. Oh, it's a sorry. great name. Oh, thank you. No, don't well, thank me. Thank your mom. Oh. <laughs> I had two questions. Um, my first one is that 
I'm still a little bit kind of confused on the Trinity. Uh-huh. So um, I always thought of it, you know, how God sent down his son on earth to die for our sins. And um, I know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But what I'm confused about is that once we get to heaven, right, and God said that Jesus will be sitting on, the, on his right hand right next to him. So when we get to heaven, are we going to see Jesus and God at the same time? Because I know everyone, like, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So I'm just kind of confused. When we get to heaven, are we just going to see Jesus or are we going to see God on the main throne? And then my second question is, what's, like, the craziest miracle you've ever experienced in your life? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, the, the first thing about Trinity, were you here the night I talked about the Trinity? There's one God eternally existent in three yes. persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is kind of the formula that was developed at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Church wasn't able to really have before that any big councils to discuss theological issues because the Roman Empire was trying to suppress the church. But during the 300 years where the church had been born, there were people who were teaching things that were false, it came to a head, and they had this council, and the first doctrine they wanted to clarify was the doctrine of the Trinity, the doc- the, really the doctrine of God. And so they, they came up with that formula, one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They hadn't figured out quite yet how the two natures of Christ work, human and divine. They'd have a council at Constantinople in 381, and then the Council of Chalcedon in 451, where they kind of set up how we understand the orthodoxy. All these orthodox doctrines were drawn from Scripture and tried to be spoken of in a theologically coherent way so that people would be more understandable. The way I said it the other night, though, is that God is a non-contingent being. He's a God of love. Who's the object of his love? Relational, well, that's right. Relational attributes in a non-contingent being presuppose that relationship must be necessary in that being. So there's the Trinity. Now, when we depict it, if you read some of the descriptions of God in the book of Ezekiel, say, and some of the other prophetic books, it, this, this thing looks complex. I know if, if everybody who sees any, any uh, vision of an angel or, or Christ or what they call a theophany, pre, uh, a pre-appearance of God or a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before uh, he came in the incarnation, they always fall on their face. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, if you look at a Victorian painting where an angel shows up, you'd think the first thing the angel said to somebody was, oh, there, there rather than fear not that you keep getting in the scriptures. So I think that when it talks about what is depicted, what we'll see, I think it's, it's sort of dumbed down. I, I forget who it was. I think it was Calvin who said the Bible is really divine baby talk. You know how you talk to a child with really reduced vocabulary and stuff like that so they could get their minds around it? He's really big. And I think some of these depictions are like, analogies and things like that so we could get our minds around it. I think we'll see Jesus. I don't think we'll see God the Son in his fullness. I don't think we have vision broad enough for that because he, he, he is, uh, we'll see Jesus, God the, the, the man Jesus, we'll see him because he took on flesh. He's got a divine body, a glorified body, but it'll be a limited body because he's still human. 
at some level. He took on humanity forever. But we won't see God the Son and his deity uh, fully. So we may see a manifestation. We may see a manifestation of God the Father, but not him in his fullness. So it talks about him on, uh, sitting right and, and left and so on. Um, I think it'll be something like that. But I don't know if that's helpful, but come to the arts conference, <laughs> work on the imagination, and consequently, you write the book and I'll read it. All right? Does that help a little bit, Josh? Yeah. Yeah, and is this your mother sitting next to you? Yeah. Huh? So my other question was, what's oh. like one of the craziest miracles you've Oh, yeah, seen? craziest miracle. Um, when I did my doctorate, I, I had a... I had two brilliant supervisors. My first supervisor was Basil Mitchell. He was one of the, the world's top philosophers of religion. He taught at Oxford University, and he was at uh, Hartford, uh, not Hartford, he was at um, uh, Oriel College. He used to meet with Lewis every week for lunch. He was the vice president of the Oxford Socratic Club, and when Lewis went to Cambridge, he became the president. Very helpful brilliant, brilliant man, love God. Then my second supervisor was Lyle Dorset, who was a great Lewis scholar and a friend. But I had internal uh, supervisors where you would come every uh, week or so and you'd do tutorials and you'd present and you'd read what other scholars were presenting and you'd read it and try and hone one another's writing skills and ask questions to make sure that you were writing in a sensical way. And one of the soup guys in that, that milieu, I said to him, after working on my thesis, because I was married and had kids, so I took twice as long to do it. Uh, again, if purgatory exists, I probably worked off all my time. But um, he, this one internal guy, I said, am I going to have a problem with this issue in my thesis? He said, no, don't worry about it. Just go on. So I did. And after, after seven years, I presented for examination. And in England, only 25% of the people who do doctorates finish. And, and you can have one of these things happen. You can be done. You can be done with minor revisions. You can be done with major revisions and a timeline to do it in. You could be washed out and given an honorary master's degree, an MLIT. If you see somebody has an MLIT, they, they didn't make it at Oxford or Cambridge or something. Or you just wiped out. Or you could be given a chance to make a second go. So I go walking in, and you always want to, if you find typos, you want to show them that you've already got that, so when you submit the final thesis, you'll be done. And I slid it across the table to the ex the all external examiners. If you have an internal examiner, he only has 49% of the vote. Usually you'll have two external examiners or one internal, one external, and the external, your life hangs in his hands. And they say, if, and you've never met him. I've never met the guy. And so it's not a good old boy club where they finally pass you through. This is, it better be believable to anybody who reads it. So I go in, and I've never met this guy, and I put, push my paper aside. I said, these are the mistakes I found in my thesis. He said, you sit down! I've found plenty of mistakes in your thesis. You sit down. I've got a bone to pick with you. And I'm going, whoa. <laughs> and he asked a question. 
And I said, sir, that makes a boatload of sense to me, given A, B, and C. But I didn't find any accounting for X, Y, and Z. And both of those features concern me. And I wanted to have a more robust answer than merely A, B, and C. It took about 20 minutes to answer that. He said, okay, I've got another question for you. And I'm old, so I'm realizing he's trying to knock me off balance to see if I'll be able to handle it. And so I answered the second question. Then he answers the third, and he's talking in a normal voice. So I'm just seeing this is just whatever his way is of intimidating candidates. Then the internal examiner, who was the guy I asked the question two years before, is this going to be a difficulty? And he told me, don't worry about it. He asks me a question. I give him an answer. He asks a second question and asks the same question he had asked the first time. I go, what's that about? And the external examiner said, he already answered that question well. Ask him another question. He asks the second, I answer it. He asks the third question and does the same thing on the third question that he had done on the first one. And, and, and I don't know what's going on. But I answered the question. I've, I'm feeling pretty good right now because I feel like I'm answering all the questions. And then they asked the seventh question. And it was about the thing that I had asked the other guy about two years earlier. Something I could have easily taken care of. But he said, don't worry about it. I think the external examiner saw it was a problem. And the internal examiner didn't say anything about it and threw me under the bus. And my job is in jeopardy. The future of my family is in jeopardy. And I cannot tell you how discouraged it was. It was on my birthday. I was born on December 16th. It was in England, so it was very, very dark in more ways than one. I left. They were going to give me a chance to come back at it again. I left, and I go to my room and change my clothes, and I walk for about 12 hours in the dark. I was walking through Port Meadow in Oxford along the Thames River, and all of a sudden I heard a herd of horses coming in my direction. It's dark. I'm going, oh, my heavens, I'm going to get trampled to death. That's all I need now is get trampled to death by a bunch of horses. <laughs> so I find a big tree, and I put my back against the tree so at least the tree would protect me. And the sound of the horses went by, and there wasn't a horse there. That is the strangest thing I have experienced in my life. And I kept thinking, Lord, I know sometimes you'd answer the prophets cryptically. What does this mean? What's this about? I ended up rewriting the thesis, and when I took it back in, there was the external examiner, and he said, I've never done this, and all the people I've examined in the past, over 80 people getting their doctorates, he said, you passed without an examination. And I said, what? What? He said, you passed, you passed. Now Dr. Root, he called me Dr. Root. He said, this is the best thing I've ever read on C.S. Lewis. And I just want to ask you a few questions. Why you made the changes you did? I was in there for about 25 minutes, and they sent me on my way. And I, I think, as I've thought back on it, maybe God sent the noise of horses with no reality that I might know that this crisis that had happened was kind of like the kinds of things we think might hurt us, and there's really not much there. And I don't know if that's true or not, but you said, what's the strangest miracle I've experienced? I think that was it. Is that fair? All right.
Okay, I think we're going to have to yep. uh, start to wrap up here.